Bellator Champion Series is back in action Friday, May 17th, live from Paris, France. Reigning bantamweight champ Patchy Mix defends his belt in a rematch against dangerous submission specialist Magomed Magomedov. And Cedric the Best Doombay makes his Bellator debut in front of a home Paris crowd versus Jaleel the Realist Willis. Don't miss the action live at noon EST on HBO here in the U.S. And visit bellator.com watch for information on how to watch around the world. This is the very first time you'll be able to stream a Cedric Doombay fight here in the U.S., so make sure you don't miss it. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You're listening to the Vox Media Podcast Network. All right, let us say hello once again to the great John Anik, a very busy man back in the States after a fun UFC 289 event in Vancouver. And things are really about to ramp up in the schedule heading into the midsummer months. John, good to see you, man. How are you? I'm good, brother. It's going to be back stateside. Vancouver and Miami, incidentally, are very far apart, but uh, quick turn, right? I mean, I voiced the entire Jacksonville show this morning. I'm talking to you on a Friday morning. So oftentimes people say, oh, but when you're home, you're just dicking around. No, I'm voicing the Jacksonville show and getting ready for 28 athletes this weekend or next weekend, I should say, that fight card has undergone some changes even over the last 48 hours. So uh, never a dull moment, as you well know. Yes, and I was hoping we could start things off by discussing a Boston championship or two, but unfortunately, I know, not the case with the season. The B is coming up short. Well, you and I had spoken, I don't know if it was mid-season or three-quarters of the way through the winter months, and we sort of suggested out loud it's not ideal that the Bruins and the Celtics at that point in time were both betting favorites to win their respective championships and uh unfortunately it was a postseason to forget and one that we're going to remember for a long time until one of those two outfits in current form wins a title so uh yeah nothing to celebrate today unless you're in Denver yeah I think I think the last time we spoke the Bruins are up 3-1 and you were telling me that if they had lost game five, you were going to go to game six and because it was right down the road from you. So did that end up happening? No. And I'm so thankful that I, uh, <laughs> that I did not spend any of my money. Now I can save my money for, uh, for something that's actually worthwhile. So no, I did not go. Oh, good for you. Uh, UFC 289 was a card that I can gladly say exceeded expectations for most card was fun. I thought the lineup was really good. A lot of people were like, man, eh, do I want to spend the 80 bucks on it? And I was telling people, if you spend the 80 bucks on it, I think you're going to enjoy the fact, I think you're going to enjoy the card and the fights are really good. And we got some storylines in the aftermath that, that sort of put it over the top. One of which came from the main event because Amanda Nunes goes out and dominates Irene Aldana to retain her Bantamweight title. And the fight ends and she leaves the octagon. And one of, if not the first people she went to after the win was you, John Anik. And then she came into the octagon and announced her retirement. What did that moment mean to you? And if you could share, what did she say to you? 
Well, it meant the world to me. She and I are especially close. We both live in South Florida. I was able to go to her new gym, the Lioness Studio, the week before the fight. I went to watch her train, and instead, we ended up talking for two and a half hours, and she didn't even break a sweat. I was there with Nina Nunez and Roger Crawl, and uh, yeah, I felt pretty embedded with her. I'm super close with Francisco Grasso and Irene Aldana's camp as well, but uh, obviously, that was a special moment for me, and uh, you know, I don't say this softly, but I almost feel as though I can retire a happy man because ultimately, what is my initiative here, Michael, right? I'm trying to humanize these athletes and I'm charged with providing the soundtrack to their professional lives, something that their family and their friends can be proud of, especially in those big moments of which Amanda had many. So it's almost affirmation or confirmation as to the job that we are doing, not just me, but our entire live production team and our entire staff. You know, I think her kissing me on the forehead is almost her thanking the staff at large. She sort of motioned me into the octagon and I I knew I couldn't do that. So thankfully we were able to share a moment, but ultimately it's about her. She was pretty deceptive during the last two weeks leading up to the fight as to her intentions. Even Roger Kroll told us on the Anakin Florian podcast Thursday, he only found out Wednesday of fight week that she was definitely going to retire when he overheard a conversation between her and Cesar Carnero, her longtime and first time MMA coach there in South Florida. So uh, a whirlwind of a week. And I'm just really happy for Amanda to have gone out, you know, on the note on which she wanted to go. I think for the last couple of years during our conversations, you were, you were wondering when that day was going to come for her. And I think a lot of people heading into this fight felt like win, lose or draw. This is probably going to be it for her because the fact that she stuck around kind of out of spite because Juliana Pena was still the champion was really funny. I thought that was a hilarious moment in the, aftermath of all of that leading into this fight with Irene Aldana. But I felt like she had at least enough respect for Irene and Irene had enough respect for her that if she did lose, she could leave the division at a place that she felt would be okay. And winning as she did, there's just not a ton more left for her to accomplish. So I think the last few fights, you probably felt like, hmm, this might be it. But were you feeling a little more so that way heading into this one, that this was probably the last time you were going to call an Amanda Nunes fight? Yes, absolutely. Now she has it within her rights to mislead people, right? And certainly she wanted to keep the focus on this fight week and not have it be on retirement. You know, even Tom Brady didn't want all of this pomp and circumstance on his way out. And as such, he didn't, you know, get retirement gifts on every stop because you didn't know it was going to be his final season. But as the fight week went on, it seemed like there were some rumblings that she was going to retire. So the final locker room bump that I wrote, Mike, in my hotel room the night before the fight. All right, coming up next from Vancouver, our final act. And might it be the final act in the decorated career of Amanda Nunes? Because at that point in time, I did have an inkling. But I'll tell you, brother, had she lost to a Rene Aldana, she'd probably still be fighting. You think so? Yes. Interesting. What was interesting? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I just Roger intimated it as much and knowing her to be the athlete that I know her to be. If she loses to a Rene Aldana, however, unspectacularly or even by knockout, don't you think, you know, she runs that back in three or four months and then, you know, makes another mill or whatever and goes out, you know, on a better note. I just I it would be impossible for me to believe had she been knocked out by a Rene Aldana or outpointed by a Rene, even by split. I think she would have been one more, but as such, she has exactly the uh, the dream ending that she desired. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah. You mentioned the, 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 the dream moment because you've been around the sport long enough. You've been around the UFC long enough to know that as far as actual retirements go, oftentimes they come too late or not on the athlete's terms. 
to, to put it bluntly, most MMA retirements are more of a sigh of relief than anything else. And we've had some good ones too. Like we've had some memorable ones. The uh, Habib Nuragamadoff retirement comes to mind, but as memorable as that was, it stemmed from something really awful happening in Habib's life with the loss of his father. This one, very positive. She went out on top. One of the best performances of her career, in my opinion. Where do you rank this one, John? Is this the best, or should I say, is this the most positive retirement in UFC history? I think right now, I think a lot of us felt like when Henry Cejudo walked away that he was sort of doing so with one foot still in the pool, so to speak, even if that pool was not USADA. Yeah, this tops it for me. I mean, Chris Lytle had a special moment. Mark Munoz in the Philippines had a special moment. But for me, it's absolutely Amanda Nunes. And let us not lose sight of all that she has done. She's 35 years of age, 12 consecutive championship fights, and probably 13 or 14 training camps if you think about fight delays and maybe having to pull out of a fight along the way. And bro, Fighter meeting in and fighter meeting out, oftentimes the discourse would be on just that. How do you find the motivation? There's nothing else left to accomplish. And she could always answer the question in terms of the motivation, her appetite for more competitive greatness. But in terms of what there was left to accomplish at times, there just wasn't that obvious fight or name, right? The Shevchenko trilogy did not appeal to her, even less so after Valentina lost to Alexa Grasso. There's nothing left to do much, right? And I think as such, you're going to probably see them disband one division. And even when you look at at the future of the women's bantamweight division, as exciting as this might be for Holly Holm and the rest and Raquel Pennington and Juliana Pena, uh, you know, it's there's not like an obvious 1A to Amanda's one. And uh, I think she just it's a dream sequence. She walked away at the perfect time. And uh, it's the greatest capstone, at least right now in UFC history. And there's always doubts, right? There's always like a never say never. I feel like the door is closed and locked behind her at this point. I, I don't know if anything brings her back. Like, do you feel it's, it's, it's almost impossible to say there's a 0% chance she comes back. I think you got to put at least a one or a two on there for anybody at this point, but where do you put the percentage that she actually fights again? I would say 1% and that 1% would be if some 135 pounder that maybe is not even on the roster right now were to emerge over the next two years into this otherworldly great Bantamweight and all of a sudden Amanda Nunes, the ultimate competitor, wanted to sort of scratch that itch and come back. I think Nina Nunes, who right now is carrying their second child of probably four that they're going to have, I think she's more likely to come back as a flyweight and I think she can be one of the best flyweights in the world. People do not realize what a force Nina Nunes is in terms of being the general manager for Team Nunes, but also just as a fighter in her own right. Very naturally gifted fighter and athlete herself. So I think it's more likely that Nina comes back. Now, maybe Nina would put a quick end to that conversation, but I'm with you, man. We're aligned here. I would say 1% chance Amanda Nunes comes back. I just think the risk would, would far outweigh the financial or competitive reward. And as you just said, the division is going to move on. And, and, and you mentioned a lot of names. There's many directions we can go. It seems like Raquel Pennington and Juliana Pena, probably at the top of most people's lists. We do have Holly Holm fighting Myra Bueno Silva. They're getting ready to headline a fight night in July. Fighters like Aaron Blanchfield has thrown her name into the hat as, as a potential challenger because she might have to wait a little while to get a flyweight title shot. How do you see this all playing out right now? Do you think it's going to be Pennington Pena or do you think maybe we'll wait and see what happens? I don't see them having Aaron Blanchfield leave the flyweight division 
to go to Bantamweight. I think that's exciting to think about, but I think Blanchfield has a lot of work to do at Flyweight. She's on the cusp of a world title shot, so I just don't know that you want to upset the apple cart as far as that is concerned. Raquel Pennington was to face Irene Aldana, and she has won five consecutive fights. So to me, I'm not sitting here necessarily calling her the A-side, but she would be impossibly hard to deny. And Juliana Pena did earn that trilogy with Amanda Nunes on the strength of her first win against her. So to me, in a meritocracy from a competitive standpoint, that is the obvious fight. Juliana Pena versus Raquel Pennington for the vacant UFC women's bantamweight title. And the winner of that main event between Holly Holm and Maida Bueno Silva going to factor prominently in that equation as well. Uh, but I would kind of like to see Blanc Blanchfield stay put and uh, see what she can do at 25. But I understand why uh, why she's throwing her hat into the ring. Completely agree. My thought was if they're going to do this fight, instead of doing the tough finale fights on a fight night card, let's do a tough finale event, like small venue, small venue in Vegas. And let's have that fight headline. Like it goes full circle. Let's go full circle with this and have it, they, they met on the ultimate fighter. Dana White felt those two were going to fight in the finals. Raquel Pennington, anytime you ask her about Juliana Pena, she doesn't say very kind things about her. She's wanted yeah. this fight for a long time. I feel like that'd be a nice little wrinkle to all of this. Yeah. No, I stand behind that. And I do believe that you laid out nicely the foundation for that fight. My only thing as a general statement, just so I can stay consistent, I need championship fights in the 30 foot octagon, Michael, right? Like, I don't <laughs> care what the venue is in Las Vegas, right? I would have an appetite to having that title fight sit atop a UFC fight night, but I need the pageantry for a title fight that comes with the 30 footer. I just don't feel like UFC championships should be settled in 25 foot octagons. And uh, I'll just never forget DC and Stipe settling their trilogy in that tiny little cage at the UFC apex. It still doesn't sit well with me. It's a great point. Huh. So I, I, I want to bring this up because as you know, I host a million shows on MMA fighting. And one of the shows we host on Thursdays live is called between the links. And we had this conversation about where this division could go. So I asked my colleague, Jed Mishu, and AK Lee, if you had the book, if you had the mighty pencil, how would you lay this out? And AK suggested, you know what? Let's just throw Holman Meyer Buena Silva. Let's just put the title on the line in that fight. Didn't really love that idea. And then Jed Mishu threw out a suggestion that absolutely blew my mind because Amanda Nunes is out of the picture. She's retired. She's probably not coming back. Wouldn't it be an interesting play by the UFC, especially with this new merger and relationship, to take a shot at maybe enticing Ronda Rousey to come back and give it a shot. Her versus Pennington or her versus Pena. That fight's putting butts in seats, John. There'll be pageantry up the wazoo with that fight. It would sell a ton of pay-per-views. And I think that there are a lot of people out there right now, old school fans, that would give Ronda a pretty good chance against either of those women. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's something the UFC might take a look at here? Well, I love Jed and you guys have absolutely served to open up my mind here on a Friday morning, but in a true meritocracy, that just is not going to sit well with me, nor the athletes that have been donating blood, sweat, and tears to mixed martial arts over the last several years. If anyone is worthy of that type of opportunity, right? It's probably Ronda Rousey. And I do believe she would be competitive because she would not enter that setting without the guarantee that she would be competitive. But I didn't like that Henry Cejudo came back and cut the line of a bunch of 35ers, you know, that have been active. So it would be hypocritical of me to sit here and say, absolutely, let's elevate Ronda Rousey and have her return. But if ever there were a time, Jed, you're right. 
it would be absolutely now. And I'm not going to sit here and suggest she'd be a betting favorite against Juliana Pena or Raquel Pennington, but uh, I can understand why uh, why people would be excited at the possibility. But uh, in a true meritocracy, I do think that's a little bit of a tough sell because even though we can't settle on two obvious Bantamweight contenders right now, it's not as though there aren't worthy title challengers, right? There are four or five women who I think are deserving right now. And uh, unfortunately, uh, one of them is not Ronda Rousey, but we'll see. You never say it. (laughs) Yeah. And look at Irene Aldana. She had a tough performance. She admitted as much and a win or two. She's right back in the mix as well. I just want to see this division build some more fighters, John. We need more people because this is kind of the problem with Amanda's final title defenses is that, yeah, Payne is there. The trilogy is there. She already fought Pennington. She already fought Holly. Meyer Buena Silva is a newer, is, is a newer name, but like Julia Avila just had a, a, a kid. She's taken a long time coming back. And we have like three ranked fighters in this division that don't even have a Bantamweight fight in the UFC yet. So it's just kind of weird. Like I was just like, we're, we're seeing the UFC sign some fighters outright to, to fill these divisions up what I like, which I like to see, but I feel like, I don't know. This is going to take a couple of years to build back up, John. Yeah, I agree. I feel like Maida Bueno Silva, if she can beat Holly Holm, I think that's going to really give her a push. But it's amazing that a talent like Ketlin Vieta has never fought for a 135-pound championship. You, you talk about a fighter that's been on the cusp for years, who has a crowd-pleasing style, who has some pop, exceedingly well-coached, but coming off a split decision loss, right? And it's hard when you got that red stripe on your Wikipedia page to raise your hand and say, let me fight for the championship. I also believe Ketlin Vieta is going to rebuild. And when she's riding a winning streak, she's going to find herself in these conversations. But I think Pennington and Pena can really build a fight. And uh, I guess I'd rather see them probably as we sort of talk this out, get the UFC countdown shine and be on a co-main event and and be on a pay-per-view and get the shine that comes with that. There's main event shine as well. And I don't know how you quantify one versus the other, but I do believe in terms of your goal over 24 months to rebuild this division, Pennington and, uh, and Pena could do worse than getting the pay-per-view shine, you know, underneath somebody like Israel Adesanya. The Bellator Champion Series is back in action Friday, May 17th, live from Paris, France. Reigning bantamweight champ Patchy Mix defends his belt in a rematch against dangerous submission specialist Magomed Magomedov. And Cedric the Best Doombay makes his Bellator debut in front of a home Paris crowd versus Jaleel the Realist Willis. Don't miss the action live at noon EST on HBO here in the U.S. And visit bellator.com slash watch for information on how to watch around the world. This is the very first time you'll be able to stream a Cedric Doombay fight here in the U.S., so make sure you don't miss it. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity— But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school 
that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Who knew that Mr. Canada during the UFC's return to the Great White North would be Charles Oliveira? This guy was a freaking rock star, John, and boy, did he perform like one. Him and Benil Dariush got after it, fun little scrap, and Charles Oliveira, despite having all these fights, despite a lot of people betting against him and picking Benil Dariush, and, and, and I could see that, this man's getting better, John. This man is still evolving, and what a performance he had against Benil Dariush. He came out, landed some big shots early, Benil got the takedown, on the rewatch, he didn't really land much, and Oliveira just kind of bided his time. He didn't panic down there, stayed very cool, got the fight back to the feet, and then it was over shortly thereafter. What a moment it was for Charles Oliveira. What did you take away from that performance more than anything else? Charles Oliveira is as beloved right now in 2023 as any fighter in mixed martial arts. He's one of the most accomplished fighters of all time, and when you add a Benil Dariush victory to all of the wins that he already has, it's just remarkable when you look on paper at the body of work of Charles Oliveira. And when you talk about a pay-per-view price point, $79.99, what is it worth just to watch Charles Oliveira fight? And perhaps it's my boxing background that I think of when I think of maybe paying for one fight, right? But it's like, you want to talk about a guy that's worth the price of admission every time in and every time out? It's Charles Dubronx Oliveira. We asked him about his power in the fighter meeting because Justin Gaethje had spoken in these glorifying terms about Charles's power in a very short fight and just how much he felt Charles's power. And of course, Charles ever humble, right? Defers to Diego Lima and shoot the box and says that the power is just a byproduct of the technique that he's developed over the years. But Charles Oliveira has some natural power. If I can say that, and he's put it to great use. And, uh, Sometimes we're in a great rush to make these comparisons. And when you look at his legacy against Khabib Nurmagomedov, it's a very interesting conversation because nobody can F with 29 and 0 and nobody can really mess with Khabib Nurmagomedov's, domi Khabib Nurmagomedov's domination. But let us be clear about some of the wins that Charles Oliveira has that Khabib Nurmagomedov doesn't have. Even if you want to just look at wins over Benil Daryush and Tony Ferguson and just start right there. Charles Oliveira has stopped 20 fucking men inside that octagon in what I believe has always been the best division in the UFC. I know Bantamweight, you know, is the bell of the ball at times. 155 pounds in 2014, 17, 20, 23. The UFC's lightweight division is the best division, one through 25. And Charles Oliveira... Maybe he isn't the best of the bunch right now because of Islam Akashia, but he did everything in his power to set up a second meeting. And going into that fight, you sort of reference this off the top. You had to look far and wide to find pro fighters, credential pro fighters and handicappers who were picking Charles Oliveira. And even though we saw maybe some late money come in on Charles, Benil Darius was the betting favorite all week. And uh, Charles Oliveira continues to mute naysayers, right? Doubt him now. I mean, doubt him now. We said that three fights ago. Doubt him now. How big of a star is he right now? Like he's obviously very popular, but th there's tears to this. Like Connor's in his own private room, right? And then there's tier two, and it's like probably John Jones, Israel Adesanya, I don't Charles know. Oliveira. You think Charles is that tier two? It's hard to gauge, right? Canada has an insatiable appetite for mixed martial arts. We hadn't been there in four years, right? I hadn't called fights there in seven or eight years, right? So sometimes it's hard to quantify 
that particular moment. Because even the Aussies, as much as they love Jack Della Maddalena, they also want to see the American stars, right? They want to see the bona fide MMA superstars. And when you look at that fight card with respect to Amanda Nunes and everybody else, Charles Oliveira was the biggest star on that fight card. And every room he entered, the noise reflected that. I mean, this guy knows how to take a stage like few others, whether it's press conference or ceremonial way. And, and He's not looking for cheap pops, Mike. I mean, everything about it is organic. So Charles Oliveira is tier two. And those in the comments or otherwise who would who would argue tier three make a strong case, right? Because without the benefit of the internal metrics, I would suggest to you he's a top five UFC superstar right now. And uh, before last weekend, I'm not sure that he was there. Maybe top 15, but not top five. Yeah, I think him and Max are like right around the same. You know what I mean? Cause anywhere max goes, you throw max in Canada, Kansas city, anywhere in the country, the arena is going to fill for this man and they're going to treat him like a superstar. So I feel like those two are kind of neck and neck Yeah, and maybe Holloway is a tier two guy. Um, but yeah, Charles Oliveira, just very humble in nature, looks like a rock star. And oh. then he cut the English promo. I was like, this guy gets it. He's incredible. Could you imagine if he had embraced the English language like Junior Dos Santos, for example. But maybe I shouldn't say that, right? Because maybe part of the mystique is that he hasn't necessarily crossed that bridge, right? Because I always talk about Junior Dos Santos and Amanda Nunes and some of these other Brazilian fighters, Mateus Nicolau, right? Who have really been able to elevate themselves just based upon being bilingual. But I think for Charles Oliveira, he's a mystery. Even Benil Darius said in our fighter meeting, like there's more tape on this guy than anybody in UFC history. Still a fucking mystery to me. How confident are you that they're going to run this one back with Makachev? I, I feel like he's in the driver's seat. I would throw it back to you. I mean, what else does a man need to do, right? I think that my opinion dovetails with UFC president Dana White's. Maybe the expectation going in wasn't that you were going to rebook Charles Oliveira and Islam Makachev immediately. But on the strength of this win and the nature of it, Benil Daryush over five years winning eight consecutive fights. Sure, you have business between Dustin Poirier and Justin Gaethje, and that's only about six or so weeks away. Uh, but best of luck to those two gentlemen topping what we saw from Charles Oliveira. I think absolutely unequivocally, October, it's Makasha versus Oliveira 2, uh, live from Etihad Arena in Abu Dhabi. Hope you can join us. Yeah, I, I, I feel he's in the driver's seat. The one thing that I think could could put a damper on all of this, because we've seen it before, there's talks about it, both guys have have discussed it, and I don't think this is going to happen, John, because I think this fight is going to be uber competitive. If somehow Alexander Volkanovsky just runs Yair Rodriguez. And like I said, I, out of all the fights that are booked, I am, and this includes Poirier versus Gaethje too, because we know we're going to get, we're going to get a car crash of epic proportions. It's going to be incredible to watch. But in terms of mixed martial arts bouts and intrigue, Volkanovski versus Yair is the, the the fight I'm looking at the most. I cannot wait to see what's going to happen. A lot of people think Volk's just going to run him over. I don't think so. Yair may lose fights, but he takes a piece of you with him if he does. And if Volk just runs him and then cuts a scathing promo and calls out Makachev, that might be the only hurdle I think Oliveira has to go over. But again, I don't think that's going to happen because I think these yeah. two guys are going to go to war for five rounds. So I do think Oliveira is in the driver's seat.
Yeah, I mean, are we swearing here, right? Like, yeah, your Rodriguez is the fucking man, right? Dominic <laughs> Cruz coined him one of one, and I'm not sure that more appropriate words have ever been used to describe an athlete. I have no point of comparison when it comes to your Rodriguez. I absolutely think he's going to be competitive against Alexander Volkanovsky. I'm sitting here talking to you mid-June, hugely important two weeks ahead. I don't have to tell you that in terms of both of these athletes staying healthy. I feel like with the Makasha Volkanovsky rematch, you can let that marinate a little bit. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that that fight could materialize even three or four years down the line. I just think with the wealth of talent you have right now at 45 and 55, it's not a strike while the iron is hot situation. And I do believe that it's ambitious to think that Volkanovsky is going to get completely through Yair unscathed and turn it around in October. Only thing I would say is that when we did sit down with Alex to begin the year, he said he wanted to fight four times in 2023. And I certainly believe, to quote Michael Chandler, that Volkanovsky is is here for a good time and not a long time. Like, I really think he's trying to put training camps together and realize these paydays and not be fighting into his 40s. So I think we have to enjoy Volkanovsky while we can. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised to see him try for a quick turn, even if it's a hard fight in July. But uh yeah, I do believe that Islam is going to fight a true lightweight next. I appreciate you saying that because I'm with you. If I had my druthers, let Volk fight Yair. If Ilya Tapori beats Josh Emmett, there's another guy. We got guys like Mavzar Avloyev on the way up. Here's guys for him to fight. And we know that Makachev's going to have guys to fight. Even if you waited till the end of 2024, these guys run off three consecutive title defenses fighting guys in their division. Then we can do it. Like if we need a big headliner for December 2024, cool. Let's run it back then. But to do it again twice in the same year, not really into it. Well, and if Yaya Rodriguez wins, then everything changes. So cannot wait for that fight. And I cannot wait for that card, John Anik. UFC 290 coming up July 8th, the tail end of International Fight Week. Brandon Moreno, Alexander Pantoja flying under the radar, John Anik. No one's even talking about this fight. And there's history between these two guys. Pantoja's up 2-0 on him. If you want to count the ultimate fighter fight, this fight rules and no one's talking about it. Brandon Moreno is absolutely incredible, right? I mean, what an inspiration to his nation and really to any fighter on this roster as to what hard work, the right work, but hard work and determination can do for a young man. And to, to see him gain financial freedom for his three daughters. I'm just such a huge Brandon Moreno fan. I'm also a Pantoja fan. You know, his jujitsu coach, Pahumpa, essentially his chief corner, is a dear friend of mine and the man who taught me some Brazilian jiu-jitsu back in the day. So as is often the case, I'm conflicted when calling this fight. But you're right. These two absolutely have a history that will motivate Brandon Moreno to such an extent. And I would also say, you know, when Brandon Moreno won the title fight earlier this year, Pantoja, not that he upstaged his moment, but kind of didn't let him marinate in the win and wanted to immediately spin it forward with him backstage. So I think that's only heightened the tension between these two athletes. Brandon Moreno is not somebody who really needs that heat nor friction to get going, but uh, you're right. Those guys are flying under the radar because of guys like Robert Whitaker and Drake is Duplessis and, uh, and everything else. I wanted to ask you about that fight because that, that seems to be the fight everyone pinpoints when people are asking me questions on the morning show. Why is this fight happening? because Adesanya is likely going to headline that September card. And they put this fight together and Dana said, winner of this fight is turning around and fighting Adesanya in September. Seems like uh, some optimism there, John, with two guys. DDP just brings it. That man is full of chaos. I just have a hard time believing that whoever comes out of this one is going to be able to turn around so quickly. So 
are you surprised this fight's happening? Like I get the stakes and I'm and obviously anytime we get to watch Robert Whitaker do what Robert Whitaker does, it's always fun. DDP's on a roll, but just feel like the timing's a little strange on this one. Yeah, I mean, so much is to be decided that second weekend in July that I almost want to reserve judgment or opinion when it comes to what exactly is going to happen in Sydney, Australia. But we've seen circumstances in UFC history, and you're seeing it in Boston at UFC 292, where the calendar is sort of being manipulated in favor of challenger Sean O'Malley and against champion Aljamain Sterling. I remember Tyron Woodley back in the day when Damian Maya was given maybe five weeks to cut down to 170 pounds and fight for the title in Anaheim. Nothing ideal about when that title fight materialized for Damian Maya, but as challenger, oftentimes you got to take it when you can get it. And if Robert Whitaker is going to get a third meeting against Israel Adesanya, maybe it's not going to happen on his terms. Drakus Duplessis has a fight style that makes it really hard for me to believe that he's going to be able to turn around in seven or eight weeks after what happens at UFC 290. He's also coming into this fight at UFC 290, having had the deviated septum surgery fairly recently. So, yeah, it sounds ambitious to me, but far be it from me to uh, stand in the way of the ambition of the combat sports leader who has done it time and time again. But yes, it's hard to wrap your head around it as we sit here in mid-June that Duplessis is going to fight Whitaker and Adesanya back-to-back in a span of nine weeks if he beats Rob. Yeah, 290 looks good. Bo Nickel on the card. I love the Sean Brady, Jack Della Maddalena fight. There's a lot to like about 290. 291, man. Holy smokes. We got the BMF title fight, which I wasn't really for, honestly, the BMF thing. But if this... If two, if one, if these two guys can actually take the belt and like, this is a thing now, it's not just, we're going to put it in the case and never defend it again. Then I'm not really into it. But if this is a thing that like, we just keep defending the title, then sign me the hell up for it. Not only that, we get all these other, we get Alex Pereira going to two five fight Jan Blachowicz, Paulo Costa fighting Ikram Alaskarov. That is mind boggling, but I love huh. that fight so much, John. That was that was the one that really stood out to me because I think the world of Ikram Alaskarov, I think this guy's going to fight for a belt sooner rather than later. I didn't love that he had to go on the contender series. I thought he was UFC ready a couple of years, even before he got that opportunity. That's an interesting fight. 291 is wild, man. This one to me is the most chaotic card of on the books right now for 2023. Yeah. Chaotic's a good adjective. I can't wait to talk to Mick Maynard as to the booking between Ikram Alaskarov and Paolo Costa and what led to that. I think certainly the avid fans understand some of the history with Alaskarov at Hamza Chibaya, but it's a cool fight. And, Alice Gav right now, slight favorite on DraftKings Sportsbook. But yeah, I agree with you as far as the BMF belt is concerned. I would love at least once to see that thing get defended, right? If Justin Gaethje beats Dustin Poirier and then Max Holloway and Gaethje fight for the BMF belt because Islam Akashev is fighting Charles Oliveira every day of the damn week, right? I think sometimes, you know... We have fights that don't necessarily that can stand alone as pay-per-view headliners without a UFC undisputed championship that don't necessarily need this attachment. And I felt like Poirier Gaethje was a main event fight that even if it was a co-main event on pay-per-view, it should be five rounds. So I don't know that this matchup, one of the best on paper in UFC history as such, we're running it back. I don't know that it needed the BMF belt. But I'm all for it as long as whoever wins that fight at some point in the not too distant future has the opportunity to defend it, because then I think it only heightens the excitement and makes it less cosmetic. Gaethje Holloway is like my the fight I have to see before both guys move on. So I'm, you're speaking my language, John Eck. And you mentioned Boston going back to Beantown, August 19th, UFC 292. We got Aljamain Sterling versus Sean O'Malley. We got some other interesting fights on the book. Zhang Wei Li, who loves Boston, big Tom Brady fan. She loves Tom Brady. 
She'll be defending against Amanda Lemos. The card's coming together. I'm hearing rumblings of a couple of other Bantamweight fights on this card. We got Natty Ice fighting Andrea Lee on this card, which I'm really excited about. This card's shaping up to be a, a nice little return to Beantown. Well, one little bit of intel I can give you is that there have been opportunities to go to Boston, Massachusetts over the last 12 years, but Dana wanted it to be a massive show when he went back. I don't have to tell your audience that he has a lot of roots in New England and Massachusetts. And uh, as a guy who lived the first 31 years of my life inside the Great Bay State, I'm very excited to be back. I'm going to do most of the show in a Boston accent live from Teeny Garden, Boston, Massachusetts, USA. <laughs> this is UFC 292. We're ready to go. But no, it's hugely exciting to have a show of this magnitude. Huge Asian population. Zhang Weili is going to just get showered with love all week. So I'm very excited for her to experience that. A lot of Brazilians there as well, though. So maybe some love for Amanda Lemos, too. But yeah, I mean, Sean O'Malley is just a massive star. And I'm excited to see him make the walk in front of a great fight crowd like we have in Boston. And uh, I'm just really interested to see what that fight holds. Because for Aljamain Sterling to come out of a five-round war, if I can call it that, with Henry Cejudo and fight this particular stylistic challenge on short notice, if I can call it that, as champion. It's just a fascinating backdrop to the fight. And as I even think about my pay-per-view open, you know, part of what I think about the context of this fight is that circumstance for Aljamain Sterling. So, uh, yeah, Dana's blowing it out, no surprise. And uh, I can't wait to get there. The Red Sox are going to be in New York, unfortunately, so we're not going to be able to see the Sox at Fenway. But uh, very excited to see TD garden, get, uh, get a card like this. Last thing I want to ask you about before we, we wrap up here is this has been a big topic as well. We don't need to go into all, everything, the headlines that are going on right now, but ultimate fighter 31 is going on. We got Connor and Michael Chandler doing the thing and there's USADA pools and all this stuff going on. People are starting to doubt that this fight is actually going to happen before the end of the year. And the headlines just came out about another incident that happened in Miami with Conor McGregor. The headlines when Conor's involved have not been very good as of late over the last couple of years. As a broadcaster, how confident are you that this fight's going to happen this year? Because it seems to me that every day that goes by, my confidence starts to dwindle. And I've been pretty positive that something is either set in stone and we just don't know about it, that something's happening. But the more time goes by, the less confident I am. Well, if you had asked me 48 hours ago, right before all of this Miami allegation came out, uh, maybe I would be more ambitious. You know, I'm still pretty bullish that we're going to see him no later than first quarter 2024. Like, I still believe competitively Conor McGregor will be back, and uh, hopefully that will allow him to get in an active competition cycle. But I got to say, man, like had this dude not broken his leg in 2021, I do believe in my core that everything would be different, right? I understand that he has more money than he ever thought he would, but he wants to be competing in the UFC. And that broken leg was a significant setback and say what you want about how he's gone about repairing it. And I think there is a lot of misinformation out there that we need to sift through, um, but that was a huge setback, right? And Chris Weidman's still not back. You know what I mean? Thankfully, he's going to come back. But I just think that uh, that without that circumstance, we would have seen Conor McGregor a lot sooner. So I'm still holding on to some optimism that we do see him that final pay-per-view of the year. There are exceptions that can be made, I believe, as far as USADA and expediting that calendar a little bit. Um, but obviously, we're in a news cycle right now, Mike, where we don't know exactly what's going to happen in terms of some of these allegations in Miami. And that casts another shadow over this possible return. Like, I think if you're Michael Chandler, even right now, sitting here mid-June reading headlines, you're probably 
a little bit less ambitious than you were even 72 hours ago. But I do believe we'll see Connor back and uh, and hopefully not just one time, two or three times in a row. I wonder if Chandler is and his team have already been on the phone saying, look, if Oliveira can't fight in October, sign me up, call me up. Because I think they would go that route. If they needed him, I think they would do it if if they had to. But I, I, I want to see these two guys fight. It is what it is. We'll see how the rest of this stuff plays out, but just unfortunate stuff. Uh, real quick, we mentioned the last time we spoke, You had, we have Jake Paul, Nate Diaz coming up in Dallas. Maybe the the Anik Longo show will we'll yeah. head to the Lone Star State. What's the latest on this? Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there, John. I'm going to be there. Is it August 5th? August, yes, August 5th. All right, you know where I'm going to be August 5th? Nashville, Tennessee. Corey oh, Stan that's Hagen, right. Umar Nurmagomedov. So, uh, no, I'm very excited. No it's a massive main event for Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, so we're not going to get to uh, to see Jake Paul and Nate Diaz a lot, but I think we have uh, an even better plan ahead of us. That's a crazy fight. Dude. That is a sick fight. Corey Sandhagen is a is a G, man. And He's so is Mayrob Dwalish Willie. He would have taken that fight as well, perhaps against his better judgment, but it was a pretty invasive surgery for Mayrob, and he's going to be out for a little while. But yeah, I mean, you when you have guys like this within the division, right? Corey Sanhagen sets himself up for a title eliminator by beating Cheeto Vera and then is willing to fight the boogeyman, right? Essentially the number 11 guy in the world, Umar Nurmagomedov. Hat tip to Corey Sanhagen. And uh, thankfully at 35, you have a few guys who I think are cut from that cloth. Absolutely. John, you are the man. I appreciate the time as always. And uh, if I don't talk to you, enjoy all the chaos in July. And maybe I'll see you in Beantown, my man. Let us hope. We'll shave our heads together. Thank you. Let's go. You're listening to the Vox Media Podcast Network. The Bellator Champion Series is back in action Friday, May 17th, live from Paris, France. Reigning bantamweight champ Patchy Mix defends his belt in a rematch against dangerous submission specialist Magomed Magomedov. And Cedric the Best Doombay makes his Bellator debut in front of a home Paris crowd versus Jaleel the Realist Willis. Don't miss the action live at noon EST on HBO here in the U.S., and visit bellator.com slash watch for information on how to watch around the world. This is the very first time you'll be able to stream a Cedric Doombay fight here in the U.S., so make sure you don't miss it.